This may come as a shock to many of you. Growing up, my childhood did not revolve solely around football. It did not. There was actually a sport that held our family's hearts more than that of football. And that was wrestling. No, I'm not talking about WCW, WWF, that fake garbage you call wrestling. Yes, I'm from the South. I know the terminology. No, mano y mano. On the mat, grappling, three rounds. Either you win because you've outscored your opponent, or you put them on their back and pin them when their shoulder blades hit the mat. Because of wrestling, because I entered it from the time I was five years old for one of the best wrestling programs there was in the state of Tennessee and nationally for Saudi Daisy Wrestling, we were the Matt Brats. Two phrases were ingrained in us because we were expected to be good and win. Go hard or go home and no pain, no gain. Those statements were statements we lived by in the kids' club. Again, five years old, all the way up. Go hard or go home, no pain or no gain. Our coaches lived by this. They would have us run nonstop during practice to build strength and to be ready for the match. They would also make us do these ungodly drills of what is called tomahawk chops where you're in an athletic stance on the balls of your feet bouncing up and down working your quads to be ready to go the three rounds of a match for minutes at a time we would be doing these drills in the moment it was painful in the moment it was unbearable at times especially as the coach would forget to look at his watch and stop the drill it was painful but what we didn't always realize, the coaches were preparing us to endure in the match. They were preparing us so that we had the strength and the ability to last all three rounds, to get out of some of the most difficult holes there were, to be able to be in a cradle and get out of it. We had to be strong. And that pain helped us to grow in strength. It helped us to grow in endurance, to last, and to stand victorious. It was only when our hands were raised at the end of the match, or we were standing on the number one at the end of the tournament, we realized it. All that pain served a purpose. It was preparing us for something better, to be victorious. And Christian, the pain, the trials of this life, are the same. They're not there for no purpose at all. They're there to serve a purpose. And that's what we're going to look like, look at as we open our study in the book of James this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to James uh, towards the end of the New Testament. While you're turning there, just to, to help us to understand the book of James. The book of James has much controversy surrounding it. Most in thanks to Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this about the, the book of James. He said, St. James's epistle is really a right, strawy epistle. Compared to the, 
these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and 1 John, there has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Those are some strong words by Martin Luther. If you are unfamiliar with who Martin Luther is, we are very indebted to him as Protestants. He was the one who nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, beginning the Protestant Reformation, breaking us free of the, the Catholic Church and the corruption it had, had on the gospel. But Luther's wrong here. Because James is not some strawy epistle that, that's randomly put together. James is not just some book of, of proverbial wisdom that, that's randomly quoted. In fact, if, if I was to ask you different quotes, would many of you realize that they are from the book of James? There's full of proverbial wisdom. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. And yet it's all working together for a purpose, for a point. In fact, that point is made clear in James 1.27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now we're not going to unfold this this morning because we're going to be there in two weeks. That's the beauty of expositional preaching. We're going to get there. But I want to draw this out because this is the main thrust of the whole letter of James. James is working to help us to show what is this pure and undefiled religion before God. What does it look like to have a pure and genuine faith that is unstained from the world? That's what he's working at. That's what he's showing us. And it shows up over and over again as we work our way through for the next 12 weeks of the book of James. We're going to see this theme. I'm calling you to a pure faith. Is what James is saying. Will you hear it? And will you believe it? So who is this James who calls us to these things? To cause, cause us to this pure and undefiled faith? Well, as we see James 1.1, the verse part of it, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James here introduces himself as a servant or a doulos, a slave, depending on your translation, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, Jesus Christ. But more importantly, who is this servant? Is he just some ordinary servant? No, he's the James, who is the half-brother of King Jesus. One who knew him well, who lived in close proximity to him. One who would know his words if he had any. He lived with Jesus. It's also the James who's mentioned in Galatians 2.9. It says this. He was the pillar of the church along with Cephas, that is Peter and John. This is the same Jesus who in Acts 15 is at the Jerusalem council holding a high position. So this Gene Ames has relational ties to Jesus, but he is also an early leader in the local church. He's recognized by a plurality of churches as having a high authority, speaking with that authority. This is the James who writes such a hard letter to us. A letter, though, well, as Luther said, appears without gospel, but in reality, while the gospel may not be implicit, it is explicitly scattered 
throughout. Because everything that James is calling us to is not to do of our own strength and our own power. Christian, if you read the book of James and think, man, this is what I must do of my own strength and power, you have not understood his, God, his epistle. Because he's quoting much of the similar phrases that Jesus uses, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. It's here's the Gospel, and here's how you live it out. Here's a life that's been transformed by the power of the Gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what James is doing. And I hope over the next 13 weeks that we can see that together. So hear the word of the Lord from James, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. Actually, we're going to read through verse 12 for context. Hear the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here is the main idea, I think, of James 1, 1 through 11. Trials are counted as joy for the Christian, as they work to produce completeness in our faith, we seek this joy by asking God for wisdom and realizing our only boast is Christ. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen behind me. Trials are counted as joy for the Christian as they work to produce completeness in our faith. We seek this joy by asking God for wisdom and realizing our only boast is Christ. We're going to unfold this in three points that flow from this main idea. Point number one, trials and their purpose. Point number two, trials and needed wisdom. And point number three, trials and a right boast. Let's look at point number one, trials and their purpose. Brothers and sisters, if you don't already realize, trials are a reality in this life. Whether you are a Christian or non-Christian, trials mount up. They come. Sickness comes. It does not distinguish whether Christian or non-Christian. Sickness comes. 
Things such as mental illnesses, such as anxiety and depression, they come and they do not distinguish between the Christian and the non-Christian. Family drama comes, it comes, and it does not distinguish. The Christian family as well as the non-Christian family, they have drama in their midst. They have trials in their midst. It's all part of living in a fallen and broken world. These trials are going to come. If you're not already in the midst of one, one will soon come. Because it's inevitable. Here's the reality though. Not that trials will or won't come. Because trials are coming for us all. But the reality for the Christian is how will we respond in the midst of these trials? Look in particular to the second half of verse 1. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. These are not people who don't know anything about trials. These are those who have been dispersed because of persecution. In Acts 8.1, we see it reads, And Saul approved of his execution. Talking about that of... Um, my mind's going to go blank. I'm going to blame it on COVID. Uh, Stephen. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. These are those who are in dispersion. They've been scattered because of the persecution of their faith. They've been scattered from their homelands. They've been forced out of some of them, even their families. To now wander in the wilderness of their own. As they have faith in Jesus. This isn't some abstract idea of, okay, when trials come. These are those in the midst of trials that James is writing to. He's writing to those who are in the midst of facing these trials. Young Christians run out. Baby believers who are just beginning to understand, what does this mean? Those very Christians who would have thought, oh, the promises of God are to bless his people, not to suffer persecution. And here James is writing to them. He's writing to these. And he says, greetings. Or even more, there's a play on words in the original that our, our English Bibles, none of them can catch. It's the idea of rejoice. And then in verse 2, count it all joy. Rejoice in greetings. Count it all joy to those in persecution. But notice as he writes what he, what he does right here in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers or brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Count it pure joy if you've got an NIV in front of you. Count it as pure joy when you meet various trials. When they greet you, count it, consider it as pure joy. James, what in the world kind of encouragement is that for those in the midst of suffering? Should we just be joyful? Happy, happy, joy, joy, joy. No, that's not what James is, is telling those in the midst of dispersion, in the midst of exile. He's writing to them, count it all Joy, consider it, use your minds. Let me pause there, Christian. When's the last time you've entered a trial and you've actually taken time 
to think about it versus feel about it. The feelings quickly flow. We're quick to allow our anger and frustration to be expressed in the midst of the trial. What about pausing and counting it, considering it joy? Because we think about it. We think what's going on. We try to understand it. We try to reason it. That's what James is telling us here. He's telling us, count this joy. But at the same time, he doesn't say, your trials are as nothing. Too often, as people go through trials and we try to be counselors, we're, we're typically bad at it. We try to, to pat them on the back and say, it, it'll be okay. It's going to be over soon. And, and then God's going to bless you out on the other side of it. Maybe. But where is that promise? That's not the promise here in James. And it's not the promise we should give. We're bad counselors when we do that. Because we dismiss trials and suffering. That's not what the type of counselor James is. In fact, that, that type of counseling is, is more out of the mouth of Satan. He wants us to say, oh, if I just press on just a little bit, you know, blessings right on the other side of this, and then God's going to bless me abundantly through this trial. Again, maybe, but not in the way we typically think. It's not about financial blessings on the other side. It's not about ease on the other side. That's not what James does here as he counsels. Notice what he does in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Hmm. Count it all joy because the testing of your faith or these trials of various kinds that you're going to meet are working for you to endure. They're working just like that phrase, no pain, no gain. They're working to strengthen you, Christian, in the midst of it. It's working to help you endure until the end. What is that end? In verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hmm. Patting on the back, giving false hope versus grounding it in truth. James takes the, the suffering eyes of those in exile and those in the midst of persecution and he says, look here. Look with me. Take your eyes off your current present circumstance and look here at what God is doing. Look at your eyes that God is sovereign even over these trials and he's using it to work for your good. He's using it to prepare you, to complete you. Because that good work he began in you, he plans to complete, to finish. Christian, too many of us think that the Christian life is we pray, we receive Jesus, and our, our real Christian journey is done. Yeah, we do this whole religion thing, we go to church, we, we sing our songs, we do our thing, and, and that's it. No, the Christian life is God working in us through the power of His Word, through the power of His Holy Spirit to complete us and to make us like His own Son. Jesus didn't come to die and leave us as we are. He came to die so that we may be born 
again to a living hope. People who have been born again don't live the same life over. The gospel changes us. So as James is, is working towards teaching us, here is a pure and undefiled religion. Here's a pure and true faith. It's one that leaves you transformed. That one that is working to bring that work about. That's what trials are for. The testing of our, our faith produces the strength, though, so that we can finish. Just like those, those tomahawk chops of bouncing up and down for countless minutes. It strengthened the quads of the wrestler so that they could stand there ready. So they could shoot that single leg. So they could sprawl out kicking their legs out as somebody else went in on their legs. So we could circle around the mat and try and stay on our feet. Trials are doing the same for us. So that in the midst of it, we don't lose heart. That we stop looking at our current circumstances and judging our faith based on it. Because Christian, as trials come, our faith is truly tested. What has a hold of my heart? Where does my allegiance and my trust lie? Is it in the comforts of this world? We can say we have faith in God all we want until the moment it's put to the test. Do we trust God that He's working for our good as we enter in the midst of infertility or a life of singleness that we did not want? The trials of family drama, our children not turning out how we thought they would. How many of us says, the waters of depression and anxiety seem to drown you. Forget what God is doing. That he is still God, even in the midst of those waters that seem to be all encompassing your heart. James takes her eyes and says, look, here's the sovereign God. Here's what these trials and tests are doing. They're testing, do you actually love and trust God? Or do you just trust your circumstances when they're convenient and good? Forgetting who God is. Forgetting to rely on Him. That's what the Israelites did over and over again. They'd get in, in despair and cry out to God. He'd relieve them. And what'd they do? Were they changed? No. They wandered right back where they were. Trials take and test our faith to see if it's genuine. It prepares us for the endurance. It prepares us to finish the race, to come to completion. Because if we don't understand this, Christian, that we're not yet complete, we've misunderstood the gospel. We're not there even just using the application from our Sunday school material this morning, loving one another. That, that was the theme, if you weren't in a Sunday school class this morning, it was the, the theme of, of and call to love one another from Romans 12, 9 and following. This call to love one another. How many of us love those that wrong us? How many of us put and honor one another above ourselves? 
Sure, we're quick to, to honor somebody if it brings us something, but how many of us honor somebody else without any prerequisite, without anything coming for us? I'm sure at all at points we're all guilty of this. I confessed even this morning to our Sunday school class. I'd be lying if I said I didn't struggle like crazy in the midst of that last summer when certain ones were coming head on against me and trying to throw everything they could at me. It was hard when they were in the room to look at them and say, I love them well. I'm not perfect in it. None of us are. And this is exactly why we need trials in our lives to drive us more to God. Because He's teaching us to be dependent upon Him, to believe His Word, and to count it all joy while in the midst of Him. Because not that we rejoice in the circumstance. No, that's again not what James is saying. He's not saying, here, embrace this trial and say, saying, count it joy because you know who's over it. You know what he's doing through it. This is why you count it joy because it's working for your ultimate good. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. That's what God is doing through these trials. But there's a warning here too. There's a warning because if we don't endure, if we don't let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect, there's those who think they're walking with the Lord, and it's gravely mistaken. They base their trust not on their faith, but on an event. That's why I'm not a big walking the aisle guy. Because too many people put their place, faith in that one event rather than a continued enduring trust in the Lord. They put their faith more in that, that moment. They say, oh, yeah, I walked that out. Check. Rather than that clinging faith to Jesus. That ongoing enduring faith. There's a, a cultural trend of many right now calling deconstruction of faith. A deconversion story. Joshua Harris, uh, the author of uh, Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, that was prominent in the 90s is one of the front runners of something like that. Men who were put in and their boat was put in every youth group almost in the 90s to discourage dating within the church. This one has come out saying, I no longer believe that. But by many would have been exalted as a faithful person. But he wasn't truly of us. John writes in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Jesus does the same thing in the parable of the soils. When he talks about the soil that's scattered on the ground and then quickly plucked up, the soil that falls and doesn't, really have any roots and, and quickly the trials and tribulations scorch it up. Or the seed that falls amidst the thorns and choked out by the cares of the world. This kind of faith is not true faith. It proves to not last, to not endure. 
Christian, this is what we're being warned against. To not be like the seed that is choked out by the cares of the world. To not be like the seed that the moment tribulations come, our supposed faith withers and dies. That's not genuine faith. That's not true faith. Worldliness has a greater hold on the heart than that of God. Christian, beware. Beware of deception. Faith. And faith alone that endures until the very end is what saves. We must continue putting our hope and our trust in the Lord day in and day out. Even as we realize sin that grows within us, we must continue to confess our need of Jesus. We don't ever tire of the gospel as, as true faith-filled believers. Why? Because we're reminded daily of our ongoing need of the gospel. We're not there yet. And yet these trials are working to bring us there. So let's embrace them and count them as pure joy. Because a day is coming, even amidst the trials, in which we will see Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where our possessions lie. To the land where sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. That's what trials are working to bring us to. Let's count them as joy as we endure them. But how? And that's where we turn in our second point this morning. Trials and needed wisdom. It's one thing to count trials as joy. It's another to understand how do we do that. But hear the gracious words that James speaks that the Lord invites us to in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the holy God, says, Here, ask. Here I am. All you need is to do. Is ask, and I will give you wisdom. I will give you wisdom to, to be able to count these trials as pure joy. I will give you wisdom to be able to understand what it looks like to live in the midst of these trials. I'll give you wisdom to help carry you through and bring you through to the day of completion. If you will but ask, I will give it to you. It says, he gives generously to all without reproach. So, so there's no rebuke, Christian. It, it's not if you don't have wisdom, shame on you. I don't care how wise we think we are or how foolish we think we are. All we need to do is but ask God and He will give us that wisdom. He will give us the wisdom, the true wisdom of how to live, live this out. Now, God is not calling us to simply ask Okay, what now, God? That's not what he's calling us to in, in wisdom. He's not calling us to a wisdom that we recognize wisdom of the world. He's calling us to true wisdom. Wisdom that begins with a fear of him. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Therefore, we're going to God to seek a wisdom to know to fear him. 
Christian, as those trials come, true wisdom begins to say, I fear God more than this trial. I fear rejecting my God more than seeking the comforts of this world. That's a true fear of the Lord. That's true wisdom. That's the wisdom we're seeking here. Wisdom that, that helps us to believe in God, to trust in God through it. To say, God has this all. He's working it all. That's the wisdom. But we must beware again. Look at verse 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We're to ask, but we're to do so in faith, not doubt. Now let me clarify this doubt. Even as I brought up this morning in Sunday school with, with the word love, the English language, as much as we may love it, because that's what most of us know, is one of the weakest languages out there. The word love has four words in the Greek which the, the New Testament was written. But doubt, too, has multiple meanings in the languages. Ours does not carry all of these nuances over. We have a, a simplistic language in the English language. We don't even have a plural, y'all. We call that bad grammar. Every other language, even Spanish, has a plural you. It's a weak language. This doubt is not sitting here saying, Christian, if you struggle to grasp every little thing, then don't ask God anything because you're not going to get it. And the reason, what I'm trying to say, I want to point back to Abraham. Abraham doubted God in moments along the way. He believed God's promises, but he doubted in how those promises were going to be fulfilled. He doubted that, was he truly going to have a son of his own? He wanted to, his wife tries to tell him, go and have sexual relationships with my handmaiden, and here, there's your child. Abraham has doubts along the way. Even one of the twelve in Thomas doubts that the Lord had truly risen. That he was raised from the dead. He said, unless I see and touch him, I will doubt. Hence the nickname Doubting Thomas. It's not talking about the occasional doubt here. Christian, we're all going to admittedly, if we're honest with ourselves, going to have those moments of occasional doubt along the way. Okay, God, I believe you. I just don't see how. I don't see how you're going to work this out for my good. I don't see how you're at work in the midst of this. I just don't get it. That's the doubt that we're all going to experience sooner or later along the way. The doubt here it's calling us to not have is one of a doubt within. It's talking about an internal war going on within the own heart that is divided. It's divisive. It's one foot on, on the shore of the world and one foot in the boat with God and wondering why you're doing the splits because they're going in teetotal opposite directions. This is the doubt that's being talked about here, a doubt of allegiance, a mind. It's that of, uh, as Doug Moose says in his commentary, so the one who doubts 
not possessing an anchor for the soul, does not pray to God with a consistency and sincerity of purpose. Pray to the shifting winds of motive and desire. The doubter wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. It's asking in this kind of manner of divided heart that is being warned against. This is why it goes on to say there in verse 8, he is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This person says they want one thing while their actions, their speech, display another. Christian, we can't say we want wisdom from God if we're living in unrepentant sin. We can't say we want wisdom from God if with our tongue we're speaking poison in slander and gossip. And yet at the same time with that same mouth asking for wisdom. We're going to come back to that in James 3 even more. These are the things that pure faith calls us to. Asking with true and genuine faith. Faith that is not divided by the things of the world and the things of God. Pure faith has its occasional doubts. But ultimately it trusts in the sovereignty of the Lord through the thick and thin. The calm and raging. The peaceful and the chaos. Or the double-minded, the unstable, do not. One minute they're with God and one minute they're not. Christian, do not presume, if this describes you, that you are asking in true wisdom. That you are truly asking God with a right heart. Repent and turn from your double-mindedness to the Lord. Seek a true wisdom, wisdom that is not of this world and wisdom that is of God. First Corinthians 1 27 through 29 says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This kind of wisdom speaks far more volumes than the false wisdom of the world. Because this kind of wisdom gives us hope in the midst of suffering. Think how, how vital knowing this kind of wisdom is helps those in the midst of exile. Knowing that the sovereign Lord ruling over everything, including our trials... Works them for our good, as seen in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.35 goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Too often as the tribulation, and the suffering, and the sword come, we think, Man, I must have done something wrong along the way. God must have his back turned against me. Instead of he is for me in the midst of that, and with me through it. It's this kind of wisdom that helps the suffering. It's knowing that as a diagnosis of cancer or other deadly disease comes, that God is working all things out for our good. He's not forgotten us in the midst of that. Because sooner or later, He's going to call all of us home. But even through that cancer, He's working to help us to see He is worth more than this world that is perishing. That he is with the one going through that disease. For the families who are going in the midst of conflict. 
knowing that what in the world do I say in this difficult situation? I don't want to cause division. I don't want to stir the pot. If Jesus himself tells those who are suffering and going to be brought before governors, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you in the moment what to say. How much more is he going to give us in the midst of that family situation? How to speak wisely if we're immersed in his word and prayerful about it. God does not abandon you in that. But he gives us wisdom to ask for, to seek how to walk through it. That's found in his word. But it's, we must be immersed in that word. We can't be asking for wisdom from God if not opening the pages of the Bible, allowing that God to speak. That's how God speaks wisdom to us. To know his word and then rightly wisdom to apply that word. Let's seek for that kind of wisdom. Let's seek for wisdom in knowing the one struggling with anxiety and depression, one, the person who may not even want anyone else to know they're struggling with it because they feel like the storms and waves are crashing against them, just pushing them deeper and deeper into the sea with no hope to ever come up. Know that this Jesus, he suffered too. He suffered in the fact that he sweat drops of blood of grief in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been there. He knows what it's like to suffer. He went to the cross willingly to die so that he could purchase us. The same Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This Jesus invites us to himself. That's the kind of wisdom we need. Wisdom from the scriptures that aims right at our hearts to give us hope in the midst of these trials. Christian, will you seek this kind of wisdom? See our need for it. And continue seeking Jesus through the pages of the Bible because it all points to him. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. Trials and a right boast. We've seen that we need to count trials as all joy or pure joy. We've seen that if we lack wisdom, we need but ask for it. But we also see trials put both the proud and the lowly on their face with an equal boast, a boast that is only found in Christ. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother, the poor brother, boast in his exaltation. He who is lowly, who is nothing, and down here by societal, worldly standards, is raised up on high in exaltation. But the rich who is esteemed the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The lowly are now considered exalted with Jesus. They are raised from their lowly status and now considered sons who will inherit the heavens and the earth with their king. On the other hand, the rich who were exalted in their worldly status are made low in being compared to a man of sorrows who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. 
Their only hope lies in taking up their only their cross and following the suffering king. You see how trials put us on equal playing fields? Our trials put us there because our only boast, whether lowly or rich, whether sickness or health, is that of Jesus. Our only hope is in Him. Christian, will we see that in the midst of trials, it's throwing us on our faces because we need Jesus in the midst of it. We can't endure without Jesus. We can't have wisdom without Jesus because all true wisdom is fulfilled in Jesus. We need Him. This is why we count our trials as joy. Because it's through suffering that our salvation was won. It's through our suffering that it was made possible. It's through Jesus being pierced for our transgressions that we are made clean and made white as snow. Christian, rest in this kind of wisdom. Rest in this kind of hope in the midst of whatever suffering you are currently going through or will soon find yourself. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, what in the world? How in the world do I count these trials as joy? It's impossible. That very thought should throw you on your face and is the reason why you need Jesus. Because the gospel penetrates and overturns everything of this world. We count it joy because the hope we have is to live forever with our King in heaven. In fact, a new heaven and a new earth. Friend, this is what you need to believe today. You need to believe Jesus came to die for your sins. He rose again, calling you to a new hope in Him. Will you believe that today? Christian, we're going to see that a pure faith is overturned by a call to flee from worldliness. We're called to flee from that worldliness. A pure faith runs from it, not towards it. Let us seek a pure faith as we continue our study in the book of James. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the fact that